Well, it is a great honor to be here and, and get to share with you why I'm not an atheist, part two. Now, part one was several weeks ago, uh, and we had a little um, interruption to because we had a special guest who spoke on Buddhism for two weeks, and now we are back to why I'm not an atheist. Those of you who don't know me, let me tell you that I'm a person who lives with a foot in two different worlds. I live with a foot in the legal world because I am a lawyer by profession. That means that I practice law and I'm in court basically every day except uh, the weekends. That's what we live and, and do. The other foot is not my profession of occupation, but my profession of faith. And that is, I am a Christian. And so when you hear this message, either in here or on the internet, you need to know that, that I, I have a bias. I've already decided what I believe, and I'm walking you through some of the things that have caused me to be where I am. And so I, I want to make that clear to you. This isn't... Uh, um, a, a trickster presentation. This is my best effort as being as open and honest as I can in a fair and balanced fashion. And so that's what I'm trying to do. So one of the nice things about being a trial lawyer, now I'm not a contracts lawyer, and some of you have, have kindly come to me and said, hey, can we get you to look at this contract? And I laugh. That would be like asking... Um, uh, uh, and I mean, I, that, that's malpractice. I would not know how to do it. I'm sorry. I can't form a corporation. Can't help you with your 501c3s. In fact, I can't even do family work. I don't know how, I don't know where the family law courts are. I can't do criminal work. If you've got uh, some criminal case, God bless you. Find some lawyer who knows what they're doing. I can't do any of that. But man, you want to sue somebody? Are you getting sued by somebody? Moy. Okay? That's what I do for a living. I operate in the court system. I am a courtroom trial lawyer. And one of the most important things that we always have in every case we try is the burden of proof. The burden of proof is what the law says you must do to make your claim. Here's the simple illustration that I've used and probably used it several weeks ago, but I put it fresh in your mind. Um, there's, there's Patty Pedestrian who's crossing the street. And David the driver comes down. And he runs through the red light and he smashes into Patty Pedestrian. And he kills her. And so someone comes to me and says, would you help Patty Pedestrian, his family? I say, I'll do my best. Well, I have to show that David the driver did something wrong. It's not enough for me to say, Patty's now passed. I have to show that David did something wrong. I can't just say, well, he was driving the car. The car killed her. Okay, that doesn't mean David did anything wrong. 
Maybe she dashed out in front of the car. I've got, if I want to win that case, I've got to prove the case. I have a burden of proof. Now, the burden of proof is on the person making the claim. David, the driver's lawyer, doesn't have to prove anything. David, the driver's lawyer, can just sit back. And if I cannot prove my case sufficiently, when I'm through, and I say, Your Honor, I rest my case, David, the driver's lawyer, can stand up and say, Throw it out, judge. Doesn't even go to the jury. Just throw the case out. Lanier did not carry his burden of proof. Now, this is important because what I want to talk to you about is basically proof. We'll be talking about over the course of this series, proof that there is no God, proof that there is a God, proof uh, that supports Hinduism, proof against Hinduism, proof that supports Islam, proof against Islam. I want to weigh these things the way we would in a courtroom. I think that's a fair way to do it. Courts didn't just come to be. Courts are the evolution of society figuring out the best way to determine truth. So we use the court system to decide if someone murdered someone and that person is worthy of the death penalty. We use the court system to decide which parent is more suited in a divorce proceeding to take care of children. We use the courts to decide all of these matters of utmost importance. And we use those courts because they're the best tool we've got for figuring out the truth. So I sit here and I say, all right, scratching my head. What am I going to do? And if you were here before, you heard the main reason I cannot be an atheist. And if you are an atheist, the reason I want to urge you to change your mind is because I can't see the proof of atheism. Where is the proof that there is no God? Remember, atheism, atheism means there is no God. That's different than the word agnostic. We'll deal with agnostic next in, a, in another class, set of classes. Agnostic means, um, I don't know if there's a God or not. Whoops, go back. I lost my power. There, I, it disappears shortly. Boom, boom. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if there's a God. It can be a fleeting thought. I'm not dealing with that today. Today I want to talk with my second part, and it may actually take us three weeks to get through this, why I'm not an atheist. Why I cannot accept those who say, we know there is no God. Prove it. So, um, it's fun to have Lee here this morning, because Lee and I were together in Oxford about a year ago, or maybe it was in London, but we were over there taking depositions. And I said, come on, Lee, you got to go with me into the bookstore. 
He says, what are you looking for? I said, I got to get these books by these atheists. I'm, I'm just tired of this stuff. I'm, I, want, I want to get these books. And so Lee was with me when we went in and we got these books. We got The End of Faith by Sam Harris. We got The Portable Atheist by Christopher Hitchens. We got The God Del- Actually, I didn't rebuy that. I'm not giving him the extra money. I already had it. The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And then uh, Daniel Bennett's uh, uh, book, Breaking the Spell. Those men have the reputation of being the four horsemen of the new atheism. And that's a label that, that they seem to carry uh, 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 around with them, although one of those four horsemen is dead. Uh, Christopher Hitchens died here in Houston. At, I think it was M.D. Anderson uh, from cancer. But those are the men. They're smart people. Richard Dawkins in his area of science is absolutely, I don't know if brilliant's the right word, but he's really good. And he's really smart. This Sam Harris guy, he's a doctor. He's got like a PhD or something in neuroscience of some thing. He's real good at functional MRIs and, and doing all of these measurements of the brain and, and testing, not measurements, testing of the brain. I mean, these are not stupid people. These are very bright people. The problem is, sometimes they tend to get a little bit outside their area. That may stun you. But let me explain. So, for example, Richard Dawkins, the God delusion. He's real good at his area of science. But when he starts trying to be a lawyer, for lack of a better word, or an arguer, that's our nickname as lawyers, an arguer, as he tries to foray out into the area of argumentation theory, he's way out of his depth. And you can tell it by reading his stuff if you're into argumentation theory and logic. The same is true for Sam Harris. I could use the book that Sam Harris wrote to teach an argumentation class. But I would use it as an example of how to argue wrongly. Because it just it's a textbook. And we don't like to hear this stuff. But there really is such a thing as logical arguments and evidence and fallacious are arguments loaded with fallacies. Logical fallacies. Some of them we learn in law school as rules of evidence. Others we learn in argumentation theory. So it would be okay if these guys would come forward and say, I'm an agnostic. I don't know if there's a God or not. But for them to come forward and to make a suggestion like Dawkins does in his book, The Selfish Gene, where he says faith, believing in God, is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. So he's got evidence that there is no God. 
and I'm old, but I remember the commercial. Where's the beef? Where's the evidence, Richard? Where is your evidence that faith flies in the teeth of? I want to know. So I look through these books and I look at the arguments and I've listened to the lectures and I go through this. And my question for you is, is the proof of atheism truly proof? Or is it some sleight of hand rhetorical magic? The first section of this, a couple of, maybe about a month ago now, my first section of this, I talked to you about how the first thing they do is they say, we know that there is no God by shifting the burden of proof. Here's what it really means when you strip it down to its basics. There is no God. Prove it. Okay, I'm going to prove it. Prove to me there's a God. Well, no, 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 no. You've just shifted the burden of proof. If you're going to say there is no God, you ne- if you're making that claim, then prove it. And so we talked about that last week, uh, last session. Uh, we dealt with some of the classic examples from Carl Sagan, uh, Bertrand Russell. And uh, if you've got a chance, you can go back and watch it. If not, uh, read about it in the paper. But in addition to that... I categorize most of what these people have to say as logical fallacies and tricks of language, rhetoric tricks. I would love to have one of these fellows on the stand with a good judge that would allow me to cross-examine them where they actually have to answer the questions. Because it's really problem. So last session, we dealt with shifting the burden of proof. This session, let's look at the logical fallacies. I want to start with one out of The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Now, he starts his book out with this illustration. This is the first thing of note in his book. Here it is. The young man boards the bus as it leaves the terminal. He wears an overcoat. Beneath his overcoat, he's wearing a bomb. His pockets are filled with nails, ball bearings, and rat poison. The bus is crowded and headed for the heart of the city. The young man takes his seat beside a middle-aged couple. He'll wait for the bus to reach its next stop. The couple at his side appear to be shopping for a new refrigerator. The woman's decided on a model, but her husband worries it will be too expensive. Okay, the lawyer in me, the bells were already going off. You should see the scribbling in my copy of the book. This is a ludicrous example that is a textbook illustration of loading up a story. That's not a real story. I mean, yes, there are suicide bombers on buses. But sitting next to a middle-aged couple where they're shopping for a new refrigerator and the woman's decided on a model, but her husband worries he's trying to draw you in. This is not logical thinking. 
This is playing with your emotions. Getting you emotionally primed. That's all this is. The woman, by the way, you never want to watch the Republican National Convention or the Democratic National Convention with me. Because those speeches, I ripped them apart like this too. The woman has decided on a model, but her husband worries it'll be too expensive. He indicates another one in a brochure that lies open on her lap. The next stop comes into view. Oh, he's building suspension and intenseness in this story. The bus door swings. The woman observes that the model her husband has selected will not fit in the space underneath their cabinets. You should be feeling worry right now. Lady, do you have any clue who you're next to? What's about to happen? New passengers have taken the last remaining seats and begun gathering in the aisle. The bus is now full. The young man smiles with the press of a button. He destroys himself, the couple at his side, and 20 others on the bus. The nails, ball bearings, and rat poison ensure further casualties on the street and in the surrounding cars. All has gone according to plan. Last page. The young man's parents soon learn of his fate, although saddened to have lost a son. They feel tremendous pride at his accomplishment. They know that he has gone to heaven and prepared the way for them to follow. He has also sent his victims to hell for eternity. It is a double victory. The neighbors find the event a great cause for celebration and honor the young man's parents by giving them gifts of food and money. These are the facts. Those aren't facts. Those aren't facts. I haven't seen the parents. I haven't talked to the parents. He doesn't footnote the parents. We don't know that the parents are rejoicing. We don't know that the parents think that the heaven's been prepared for them. We don't know any of that. This is a made-up story that's got enough reality because there are suicide bombers who have been on buses that make you think he's actually telling you something factual. These are the facts? You put the guy on the stand. Sir, when you say these are the facts, you, you, you're lying, aren't you? And these aren't the facts. These are things you've said to get the response you want. This is all we know for certain. About the young man. We don't know that stuff for certain about the young man. We don't know. Hey, young man, before you blow yourself up, would you please tell us for certain so we know? Is there anything else we can infer about him on the basis of his behavior? Was he popular in school? Well, no, you didn't tell us that stuff. If you'd have just put the word in, He's a lonely man, a lonely young man. Then we'd be able to answer that question. But you didn't pad the story that way with your made-up facts. Was he rich or was he poor? You could have put that in the story, but you didn't. Was he of low or high intelligence? You didn't tell us. Did his actions leave no clue at all? Did he have a college education, a bright future as an M.E.? His behavior is simply mute on questions of this sort and hundreds like them. Right. Because you didn't add that to the story. Why is it so easy then? So trivially easy. You could almost bet your life on it easy to guess the young man's religion. Answer? 
because you wrote the story that way. But Harris uses this as a springboard to say religion does all of these horrible things. And religion is a terrible thing. Religion does bad stuff. That's his argument. That's the reason, according to Sam Harris, there is no God. At least at the start of his book. So I just wrote down a few of the logical fallacies in that three-paragraph story in summary. One is called an ad hoc rescue. It's kind of technical. I'll cut you some slack and you can read it. The second one, an appeal to emotion. That's all the bit in the story about, oh, they're thinking about buying a new appliance and wondering if it'll fit and is it too expensive. He wants to draw you in and he wants you to feel for that couple and, oh, the bus got crowded. And, and okay, you don't need all of that. You don't need all of that to prove his point that some people in the name of religion do bad stuff because that certainly does happen. But he doesn't leave it there. Because he's on an agenda here of playing with your mind and your heart and not simply being logical. Relevance? There's so much in that story that's not relevant to what he has to say. An appeal to your instincts. An overgeneralization. He assumes facts that aren't in evidence. There's no evidence of a bunch of that stuff as I pointed out as we went through it. But you're reading this, and most of us read at a pretty quick rate. And you're just reading it, and you're saying, oh my gosh, he makes a really good point. We didn't know anything, but we knew this guy must be, he wants you to think he's Muslim, by the way. We knew this guy must be Muslim. Because jihadi terrorists, they do this kind of stuff. He may be Hamas. That is not the same as saying he's a Palestinian. We have a marvelous Palestinian Christian right down here on the third row. He'll correct me if I get that wrong. Look, don't get me wrong. Religious people, no, people do bad things in the name of religion. That's the way to say it. People do bad things in the name of religion. But you know what? Atheists do bad things in the name of atheism too. Now, some people say, no, Adolf Hitler uh, was not an atheist. Uh, Adolf Hitler was a Christian because Adolf Hitler in a couple of his public speeches sort of said as much. Okay, newsflash. Don't believe what every politician tells you in their speeches about their religion. Okay? Number two. As Pastor Avery said this morning, by their fruit you shall know them. And we've got Hitler's luncheon dialogues that he had his secretary take down. And you can see him mocking faith. But let's just say... 
Because there's this big argument, because the atheists, I mean, if Hitler's an atheist, they're in bad trouble on this idea that religion does bad stuff. So they're going to try and argue that vociferously, uh, just, just teeth and nail. So set Hitler aside. How about this fellow? Mao Zedong. Don't tell me he was religious. He wasn't. And the scholars from the 20th century debate who killed more. Hitler or Mao? There's a third fella that they put in that conversation. Joseph Stalin. Who's responsible for more death? Stalin wasn't a Christian. The, don't, the, the Soviet Union that he established was not a Christian or religious country. They had an entire division for teaching atheism. They had like a guy whose job it was. Uh, chief... Enforcer of atheism. If there's no God, it's real easy to justify whether you're calling out the genetic inferiors, as Hitler would argue, or whether you're getting rid of the mentally deficient, as Mao would argue, or Stalin would argue. Mentally deficient in the sense that you don't subscribe to their regime. Well, hey, if there's no God, that's kind of a free-for-all. No. Now, does religion do bad things? You bet it does. Here's the truth, though. You don't need the elaborate stories. You don't need the appeals to your emotions. You don't need any of that. Let's just be honest and logical and truthful. I would suggest to you the truth is the following. One, religion can be destructive. It can be. 911. Slavery. There were some people who tried to justify slavery in America based upon the Bible. And that is a destructive use of the Bible, but it is a destructive use of religion. But I got news for you. Religion can also be constructive. William Wilberforce from Hull, England, is the one who authored the laws in England to make slavery illegal, and he did it because of his Christian faith. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, massive, massive, massive fella preaching and teaching against slavery as being against the will of God and writing a, a pamphlet where he says, you know, you don't want to be standing close to the fella who goes to see God when this is all over with if that fella was a slaver. Um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, famous Christian preacher. Very, very, very harsh. They were Christians who in the name of their religion were fighting to end slavery. And I got news for you. You read history, you'll read about slavery in lots of societies that are not religious. Humanity has this fallen streak where we would love to have people, in the words of the great British philosopher, uh, what's his name? Big Lips. Struts, Mick Jagger, 
under my thumb. <laughs> Thank you. Under my thumb. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that, that's part of us. So religion can be destructive. Religion can be constructive. I'll give you a third. Atheism can be destructive. That's the truth. All right. Sam Harris, set him aside. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Richard Dawkins in the God Delusion. He's got a chapter where he's going to prove there's no God. And what the chapter basically is, is an attack on creationism. Dawkins is an evolutionist. And so Dawkins, with evolution and, and his scientific explanation of evolution, deconstructs the Genesis account of creation the way a lot of people who are Christians understand it. Not all. He deconstructs it. And he says, so, if evolution is true, atheism is true. No. No. I, that's just like so wrong. I mean, do you realize that the modern evangelical literal view on Genesis is really something that's really only come about in the last hundred years. That's not the way Genesis has traditionally been read. And Genesis isn't... Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are not written as part of a science book. They are written... Now, they may be speaking truthfully about how God did things. I'm not fussing that point. I don't even think you need to argue that point. That's I've taught on it. You get my classes on it, all the rest of that mess. All I'm saying is there are incredible Bible-believing Christians who read Genesis 1 and 2 for the lessons that they are teaching but do not consider them to be the science answer. I mean, evolution itself is rather irrelevant to whether or not there's God. God can do things however He wants to do them. Look, and, and even still, if God makes... And the absurdity of this just really gets me. So go with me for just a minute. Here, let's come over here. So, here we go. We got the PowerPoint. I mean, uh, the uh, not PowerPoint, the Elmo. All right, so... God comes, and he says, I'm going to create Adam and Eve. We're going to make Eve a little bit taller, because I have daughters, and I want them to know they can do anything they want to do. Here, this is Eve. Okay? God says, I'm going to make Adam and Eve. Now, do you think Adam and Eve had this thing we now learn called D-N-A? Uh-huh, I do. In fact, they've passed it on. DNA, where did they get theirs from? Yeah, it was made. Well, you look at them and say, well, no, they could not have been made because they have DNA. DNA comes from parents. Clearly, they were born. 
Well, no, I mean, look, here's, in, they're living in a garden. And the garden's got trees. Okay? Yes, I failed art. If you chop down that tree, timber, then you got the tree stump. Right? If you look down at the tree stump, what are you going to see? Rings. Well, no, you can't have rings because that tree was just made. Okay. God's made a world that makes sense if you're standing at the world looking forward or if you're standing at that point looking backwards. It makes sense. God's not an irrational God. He's not a God of gotchas. Oh, we got you, God. You accidentally made a tree without rings. You left the DNA out of those people. I mean, that, there's just no point in even arguing that. My point is this. If you believe in evolution, God bless you. I just want you to believe in the Bible as well. I, the, the, the evolution fight is not a fight. Here's the problem with this. You take evolution, and here's where you wind up. Here's your truth. This is what Dawkins ought to be putting in his book. The truth is this. The scientific method doesn't prove or disprove God any more than a ruler proves or disproves the temperature. Now, rulers are really helpful. You know what a ruler is, right? Now, I'm not talking about king. I'm talking about those types of rulers, you know, with the one inch, two inches, three inches, four inches, five inches, etc. Hey, those are really useful for measuring things. They're accurate. You can use them to prove that something is six inches long or two inches long or eight feet long. You can use a tape measure. You can use a ruler. But you cannot prove what the temperature is. That's 90 degrees, 80 degrees. You need a thermometer. Our daughter Rebecca had her tonsils out about eight days ago, nine days ago. And we had to monitor her for a fever. Becky didn't keep a ruler by the side of the sofa. You've got to use the right methods for these things. You don't use the scientific method to prove or disprove God. You just don't. And it's wrong to suggest that you do. Now here's Dawkins' other point in there. First, he uses evolution and says creationism's wrong, so there must be no God. As if God can't work. I, look, God set the machine knobs for nature. God set those knobs in such a way where even if there was the Big Bang and all of the uh, expansion of the universe and somehow settles down planet Earth. And over the course of a billion plus years, the soup gets just right in the right place in some body of water where some process happens such that the right molecules seem to come together in just the right way where they manage to come 
and start this process that results in you and me. If all of that actually happens, who set those knobs in nature to do that? I would think if I were an evolutionist, I'd more likely believe in God than otherwise. Man, otherwise, play the lottery because we are the luckiest people on in, that you could conceive of for all of that stuff to work out. Here's, here's Dawkins' other argument. Uh, God would have to be too big. I mean, there's just too much stuff going on for one God to hold it all. Here's the way he says it. <clears throat> A God capable of continuously monitoring and controlling the individual status of every particle in the universe cannot be simple. His existence is going to need a mammoth explanation in its own right. Worse, from the view of simplicity, other corners of God's giant consciousness are simultaneously preoccupied with the doings and emotions and prayers of every single human being and whatever intelligent aliens there might be on other planets in this and a hundred billion other galaxies. True? I never said my God was a small God. I never said my God was going to be easily grasped by this fella who's got, uh, on average, our brains are three and a half pounds. Whoops, there we go. I don't have the half up there. On average, the brain is a three and a half pound bunch of gray stuff. Let's give Dawkins the benefit of the doubt. He may be a four pounder. This guy may really be rocking the gray cells. The mere fact that he can't conceive of a God who claims to hold the universe in his hands of a of an entity that great doesn't mean that that God doesn't exist. It means Dawkins got his limitations with his brain. And that's okay, because I got my limitations and we all do. But don't go telling me, oh no, there can't be a God, he'd have to be like God. Do you see the circular reasoning there? This is a classic circular argument. No, there can't be a God. Why? He'd have to be God. Okay. Work with me here. You know, C.S. Lewis was talking about this one time, and C.S. Lewis liked the, um, I don't know, maybe this bothered Lewis a little bit, but Lewis said one of the things that gave him consolation was he said, God's outside of time. So what happens to us in a second, God can freeze frame a millisecond. God exists outside of a millisecond. He exists far beyond that. God could have an eternity between one word I say and another word. God in that eternity outside of town could visit every subatomic particle, every thought of every person. You know, God God is... God is God. Don't. Okay. Sorry. He's not Dawkins on steroids. He's God. So what else do we have? The truth is this. If our three and a half pound brains can figure out the questions of this immense universe and its history, which Dawkins and others claim we can do, they claim 
that we with three and a half pound brains can truly figure out the questions of this immense universe, its history. It's scary to me to think of what something immensely greater could do with theirs. I mean, our brain, one little brain. It didn't take me and Dr. Hank working together to figure this out. He, he one brain can do it. Sorry, but you got used by Pastor Avery all morning in the sermon, so I thought I'd use you too. I mean, hey, come on. If if my brain, okay, what is the name of that guy who's like supposed to be one of the smartest guys that ever lived? Huh? Hawking? No, no, Becky, my wife. If Becky, yeah, Stephen Hawking, thank you. Stephen Hawking's written a book now where you read the book and the, the thrust of it is we've basically, I mean, there are some details to work out, but we've basically figured out the universe. She's sitting there thinking, three and a half pound brain has figured out the universe. Can you imagine what something who could hold the universe in the palm of his hand could do? I, I, that, that's neither here nor there. All right. There's one more part of this lesson that I want to teach, and so I'm going to teach it next week. I had, and, and, until yesterday, planned on trying to rush through all of this today, but I think it deserves more time. Next week, what we're going to do is I'm going to pull up some Internet websites on why there is no God. And we're going to look at the common arguments that are put on the Internet. Now, the Internet people are not always as bright as Dawkins and others, but these are the arguments that you're more likely to either entertain in your brain or to hear from others because they're the arguments that a lot of people haven't fought their way through. Is that Frank? Hi, Dr. Gannon. Um, there's another guy that a, a bunch of y'all may know over there, Baylor pathologist. We could get him up here. Just pathology alone. Come here, Frank. I got an extra minute. Come on. This is my friend, Dr. Frank Gannon, Baylor College of Medicine pathologist. Come on. Okay. The intricacies of biology alone, what we're able to understand is mind-boggling in a three-and-a-half-pound brain. Is that fair? Uh, the more that uh, science increases, the more that faith is inescapable because something that complex has to be created by an all-knowing and all-powerful creator. Thank you. Glad you visited today, Frank. Thank you. And he can diagnose prostate cancer if you got it. Okay, which I hope and pray you don't. Which, by the way, is one of the arguments on the Internet why there is no God. Well, if there was a God, there wouldn't be cancer. We'll deal with that next week. Points for home. I'm going back to these because these are so important. It comes from Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, those of you who don't know Paul, he was a Jewish rabbi, first century, who uh, uh, at first didn't believe Jesus was resurrected and then subsequently had a little encounter on a road to Damascus and changed his mind and then lived his life out uh, uh, in, in honoring his faith. So he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. We call it Romans. And here's what Paul had to say. Rabbi Paul says, What can be known about God is plain to them, the people in the world, because God 
has shown it to them. Paul is saying that there is evidence of God that should be plain for us. Frank knows it. Dr. Gannon knows it. Others know it. But we got to know what we're looking for. A lot of people are driven by what they want to find. There are a lot of people that don't want to find God. God can be very inconvenient in your life. You start believing God is there, and it will mess with what you're doing. And it will mess with you. Because you'll start realizing there's... It, it, you can't ignore that truth. If God is there, you cannot be rational and ignore that truth. So we need to understand what we're looking for. Point for home number two. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been made. So people are without excuse. Now, why do we have science? Science really developed out of the Christian West, Judeo-Christian West. Because it is the Jewish Christian concept that Paul, Rabbi Paul is giving here that forms the basis of science. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He never changes. His attributes don't change. He's just, He's righteous, He's consistent. And the universe is supposed to show that. So if Rabbi Paul's correct, we should be investigating the wonders of the universe. One of the greatest callings of a believer is to go into science. Because as we understand the, the beauties on a universal level or on a sub-microscopic level, we're exploring the beauties of a majestic God who made this and it expresses His nature as a... You know, look, I don't worry that tomorrow God's going to change the rule and say that He only likes blondes. I'm fairly... No, not fairly. I am confident that my God is unchanging. I don't worry that tomorrow I'm going to drop this pin and it's going to float. Because my unchanging God made this world with laws of nature that are as consistent as my God. So I need to recognize it when I see it and not worship the creation and ignore the Creator. Last, although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Look, none of these people I've shown you are people who are going to stand up and say, okay, I don't believe there's God, but I'm an idiot. They're going to tell you, I'm smart, and I don't believe there's a God. And I'm going to suggest there's room for some humility. Let me bless you, and uh, we'll pick back up next week with the Internet. Lord, I thank you so much for everyone that's here today. And I ask that you would touch their hearts and touch their minds and awaken them to see who you are, to see what you've done, and to hear your voice. 
We honor you as God. In your name we pray, amen.